Did you know millions of people in Zimbabwe are chronically threatened with starvation? Martin Meredith and Peter Stiff have painstakingly documented the decline of a nation once called the Jewel of Africa, but their work is getting old. Let's see what recent journalists have found when they toured the former breadbasket of the region. Here's a September 2020 article from Bloomberg, quote, In Zimbabwe, pregnant women are left alone in hospitals to give birth. Taps have run dry in major urban centers. Infrastructure has all but collapsed and more than half the population needs food aid. This is the toll that two decades of economic mismanagement have taken on a nation once considered one of Africa's shining stars. I don't know how low we can get, said Alex Magesa, a Zimbabwean law lecturer. It wasn't always like this. In 1980, respected Tanzanian President Julius Nyeri told Mugabe, a young guerrilla leader who had just taken over as prime minister of a newly independent Zimbabwe, that he had inherited a jewel and he needed to keep it that way. Mugabe spent his first decade in office augmenting the advanced infrastructure and institutions that the Rhodesian government had built and invested heavily in education and health. Zimbabwe rapidly became one of Africa's most literate nations and boasted some of the continent's best hospitals. But a crippling international monetary fund program in the 1990s along with rampant corruption, stolen elections, and the seizure of European-owned farms laid waste to those achievements. Today, many city roads are untarred. Power outages last 18 hours a day, and a quarter of the population, unable to make a living, has left the nation. Bulawayo, the second largest city, hasn't had piped water since last month. Zimbabwe's collapse is epitomized by the woeful state of its health system. Hospitals are beset by medicine shortages and recurrent strikes by nurses and doctors over pay and working conditions. The neglect of pregnant women is the latest health scandal to hit the headlines. It's a new low, said Norman Matara, a doctor who has worked at the country's biggest public hospital in Harare. Some women are developing complications of ruptured uteruses and experiencing prolonged labor, which leads to brain damage of their babies. Our schools look like something from a war film, because I doubt it's been painted in 25 or 30 years. There's broken windows, crumbling walls, and we don't have any water, said Tawanda Chikondo, a 29-year-old teacher who is trying to immigrate to the UK or Asia. This is Zimbabwe today. Can you imagine? While Zimbabwe experienced hyperinflation of 500 billion percent, in 2008 and, as a result, was forced to scrap its worthless currency early in 2009, this year's crisis seems worse to many. The reintroduction of the Zimbabwe dollar early last year has seen the value of civil servant salaries collapse to about $40 a month from more than $400 before. Surging inflation has also made a comeback." End quote. Over a quarter of the population, I'm talking about millions of people, have fled the capital city of Harare, formerly known as Salisbury. Many head to South Africa. This is modern Zimbabwe, an object lesson of what not to do when granted independence from a former imperial power, a nation of starvation, rampant crime, deterioration, hunger, and anarchy. As the Haitian historian Philippe Gerard notes, Writing histories of places like Zimbabwe requires an historian to become acquainted with all the worst synonyms in the English language. It's true. In the course of this investigation, I've run out of adjectives to describe the perennial death and pain of Zimbabwe's history. I want you to think of millions of people in abject poverty, poverty so grinding it makes the favelas of Brazil look like the gardens in the film Metropolis. I mean this literally. Brazil's favelas usually have electricity, running water, there's concrete on the roads. Much of Zimbabwe would consider the worst slums of Brazil to be an improvement. How did it come to this? There's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of poorly paid journalists reading a book or two, taking a flight to Zimbabwe and holding their noses as they interview a few people before promptly retreating back to the hotel bar. This is a case study that I've followed for many years. I've read almost everything there is to read on the subject here in minute 
authoritative detail is presented the fall of many nations and the loss of untold millions of property. It's orgiastic witch doctors spitting on the superiority of the settlers and setting their people ablaze in millennial revolt against the English. It's mighty spear-wielding warriors who formerly conquered the savannas of Africa convulsing in the red-brown dirt from scores of seemingly instantaneous blows from gyrating Gatling guns. And after their defeat, the once proud warriors retreated mole-like into dank caves, desperately searching for some way to nullify the settlers' technological advantage, only to find a burning, fizzing, concussion-initiated death when their bodies were blown apart in their cavernous hiding places one after another. The destruction of a culture, along with the bodies that encapsulated that culture, the last readouts reduced with the methodical, boring routine of a ticking clock blowing up one hiding place after another until the survivors finally, dejectedly submitted. Today, I bring you for free the too-seldom-told story of the destruction of the Indibeli and Mashona people. Their religion trampled down, their proud, muscle-enwrapped warriors killed or reduced to menial laborers, their surviving leaders corrupted for much too little trinkets and pensions. And do you think you're any different? How much did it cost to buy your religion and your culture, my British, French, and Scandinavian cousins? But first, I've got to thank Patrick from Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. And I also need to thank Aton from Parts Unknown for buying us around. But now, the military history of Rhodesia and Zimbabwe. Now, if you remember from our two episodes on the Boer War, in the late 1800s, there were two basically independent Afrikaans-speaking republics in the middle of South Africa. These two republics were blocking British expansion into the interior of Africa from the Cape and Natal colonies. Moreover, the Boers themselves, who were getting filthy rich off their vast mineral deposits, were slowly expanding north into the bottom of what is now modern-day Zimbabwe. At the same time, Portugal ruled Mozambique was claiming and exploring vast stretches of the African interior. This expansion was all part of the scramble of Africa that took place in the late 1800s. The whole point of the invasion, conquest, and creation of Rhodesia was to gain access to valuable minerals rumored but not known to be under the ground in what would become Zimbabwe. A very rich man named Cecil Rhodes and made a fortune as an organizer and financier of the giant diamond mining company De Beers Consolidated Mines. Rhodes was also the prime minister of the British-ruled Cape Colony on the southernmost tip of South Africa. He had learned his lessons from numerous dealings with the incessantly annoying Boers, who kept blocking the expansion of Cecil's wealth by constantly favoring non-English Europeans in business deals and transactions rather than Rhodes and his fellow English plutocrats running South Africa. Consequently, Rhodes was hell-bent on taking over the rest of the African interior and gaining any mineral rights before some other European power like the Boers or the Portuguese got there first. This is why Rhodes financed the exploration and invasion of the area called Mashonaland. Now, the various settlers who signed up to join the conquest of Mashonaland were not for the most part miners. They tended to be farmers or adventurers. Some just enjoyed the untrammeled wild and extensive hunting of Africa. Some had failed at everything else, and the only jobs they could find were in the wilds of Africa where no one else wanted to work the telegraph station. We see this same process in our own lives today. You go where the work is. Alright, so in the late 1880s, a nation named Zimbabwe did not exist. What did exist was one major tribal grouping who ruled over lesser African tribes who in turn pledged their loyalty and tangible payments to the dominant group. Now, the dominant tribe were called the Indabeli tribe, and they ruled over a large number of heterogeneous tribes, but the largest tribe the Indabeli ruled over was the Mashona tribe. Now, the leadership of the Indabeli nation were direct descendants of Zulu warriors, the Indabeli themselves were led by Lobengula, the son of the original Zulu general who had founded the tribe. 
The creation of the Indabeli tribe happened like this. Now, the military genius Shaka Zulu had totally dominated the various tribes of southern Africa in a genocidal series of campaigns known to history as the Mifikan, or crushing. Shaka ruled over a vast empire of vassals and grew literally fat with wealth. However... On his borders were hostile African tribes. So Shaka chose one of his greatest generals, Mislikaza, to defend his empire in the north near what is present-day Pretoria, South Africa. But Mislikaza had his own plans. He made an expedition against the tribes in the north, crushed them, took all their cattle, burned their villages, incorporated volunteers from the newly defeated tribes into his budding proto-tribe, and killed all who withstood him. Shaka confronted Mislikaza about this, but Mislikaza openly revolted against the great Shaka, grossly dishonoring Shaka's messengers in the process. Imagine modern-day diplomats slapping around their colleagues and spitting on them in the UN while screaming to them to do something about it. That's what Mislikaza did to Shaka's messengers. The student was now facing down the old master, precisely like a 70s Hong Kong film. Stan Lake Samkanje details what happens next. Quote, Shaka's response was swift. He sent a putative raid against the rebellious chief. The raid did not succeed in dislodging Mislikaza from his mountain stronghold, access to which was only possible by a secret path. A second Zulu warband was fortunate in securing the services of Mislikaza's disgruntled half-brother, who showed the Zulus the secret path and thus led to the routing of Mislikaza's warriors. Mislikaza was, however... Able to escape with a sizable body of men, women, and children and fled northwards, fighting his way. His first victim was a vassal of Shaka named Nyoka in northern Zululand. Mislikaza wiped out Nyoka and most of his people seized their cattle and grain and proceeded on his journey. End quote. There are few records of Nyoka's downfall, but a novelist imagined the scene like this. Quote, New Yoka's village was at the bottom of a lush valley. Scores of brown grass-thatched mud huts dotted the lush tropical grasslands. The landscape was more akin to Hawaii than the Tanzavanas of southern Africa. But the lush land, which had once seemed so lovely and indeed was abundantly fruitful for New Yorka's women, was little more than a mousetrap. From the surrounding breast-shaped hills, the Indabeli came rushing down, singing in cadence, a sort of primordial training song, complete with song leaders and echoes. The veterans' calloused hands gripped their lithe asagi, their cowhide shields flapping like dragonfly wings as they came on, no pity in their hearts. Pitifully, Nyoka's small band of ill-trained warriors limped out to meet them. Without discipline, without organization, they fell easily to the well-organized Indabeli. It was like watching the SEC football champions easily pick apart an intramural community college team. Grouped in cohorts, the massed Indabeli launched a first wave of short spears at the defenders, lamely too slow, like bewildered, uneducated class clowns trying to take the GRE for the first and only time. The defenders raised their rotting cowhide shields to block the flying spears. They did block some, but the Indabeli, like their Zulu brothers, threw their spears in mass, and enough got through to pick apart Nyoka's pitiful battle line. Through the gap, flowed the running back like Indabelli, stabbing with their short spears and wooden knockberry war clubs as they came on. Years of stick fighting, honing their skills like African samurai, their sweating skin glistening in the sun, blood and viscera splattered on their smiling faces as they first enveloped and then dismembered the remaining organized resistance. Often, an Indabelli would pin down a defender in contact while two more Indabelli attacked from the flanks. Then, iron-tipped death impaled the defending warrior before the massing Indabeli pressed on with their attack. One young man named Funani, just 17 years old, fell back to defend his round bullet-shaped hut. His 15-year-old wife and two children were inside screaming for their ancestors to help them. Funani stood at the door, his leather-wrapped shield and short spear in his machine-gripping hand. Three Nabeli came on, and Funani stood his ground. Inside, his wife shrieked shrill, harpy-like shrieks. His baby whimpered. Funani's three-year-old son sees his father's legs carved with muscles shoulder-width apart. As if he was in the weaver shooting stance, Funani's legs are firm, as if they would grow root into the ground itself, 
and the Indebelli attackers fan out around Funani. Funani's eyes dance from one attacker to another. The Indebelli on the left fakes a lunge at Funani, who involuntarily tenses while the attacker at 12 o'clock lasers his short spear at him. Funani is a blur, dodging the onrushing iron-tipped spear as the attacker on the right bends his body almost double and first shoots and then retracts his spear quick as a snake's tongue. The razor-sharp iron scissors into Funani's cheeks, leaving a flapping bird wing of bleeding flesh quivering on Funani's jaw. Next, the man on the left comes on, catching Funani's upper arm with his meat-slicing short spear, cleaving Funani's deltoid muscle. Funani drops his shield, and quicker than I can type these words, the center man comes on with his fire-hardened war club and suddenly transforms into Babe Ruth. The sound of the club connecting with Funani's young head is a wet crunching, a dry Kellogg's cornflakes crunching in your inner ear. Funani's head implodes, blood-covered bone flakes and brain matter spray from the circle-shaped indentation. Funani's body is a dish rag. It crumbles like knave women giving themselves to lecherous millionaires. It folds like a stolen dollar bill. His son screams as he sees his father's fish-like flopping body and then he never says anything again because he joins Funani in the great halls of his ancestors crawls. Funani's wife is raped repeatedly by many calloused handed and pitiless steel-eyed warriors. They let her live along with her toddler daughter. The women are never the same. Abuse and nothing to stop it. The death of a little culture and it's not worthy of Hollywood's attention. This will be one of my least listened to podcasts. The numbers of this show will be abysmal. But how many countless thousands of little river-abutting villages have been destroyed like Funani's little culture? How many Koreans were massacred in the Imjin Wars? Blood everywhere on this blue-orbed earth. And you listening, examine your overfed soul. Your luxury has done something to you. The story of Funani is nothing. I could tell you of unspeakable tortures, documented tortures. The Chilean death squads called their torture chambers the Laughter Palace, made a joke of their victims. Think of the Armenian genocide. Picture it in your oversoft minds. And then tell me man is basically good. That is folly. Man is a wolf to man. And if you don't believe me, ask the hundreds of thousands of orphans in Iraq, Afghanistan, in Mexico today, there's no one to speak for them. Maybe instead of education coupled with bombs, they would prefer physical safety, the safety so many of you take for granted. Funani knows better what really is in man's heart. Anybody can look at the sheer degrading maliciousness openly advertised on Pornhub.com and see for themselves the goodness of man, his tender concern for the well-being of his fellow creatures. It's sad that so many of you knew what I was talking about when I said that. It's sad that I'm the only podcaster who's got the balls to say it to you. No, at best, Solzhenitsyn was right. Good and evil are in all our hearts. That's what man really is, an omelet of good and evil, enfolded in and intermixed with one another, and sometimes there's more evil than good. But if you remember... We left Funani's corpse by his son's dead bodies. By now, many of the huts were on fire. Men satisfied their lusts on the conquered women while screaming. Horrified infants looked on, and those were the lucky ones. Many terror-filled toddlers and children were impaled, smashed, dismembered, abused, scarred. The list of indignities can run forth like a scroll that never completely unravels, seemingly eternal, like the blueness of the sky itself or the cold endless darkness of a universe which we send radio signals into a desperate civilization groping for some meaning desperately hoping to prove Camus wrong building farms of giant satellite dishes beaming out endless signals into the expansive universe but the answer is there it is the cold blackness it is the silence itself that is the too sad answer, the answer we don't want to hear, the silence, like the mute silence of thousands of tribal microcultures that have been and still are wiped out. That silence is the answer. And so, Nyoka and his people were wiped out too. 
The young and beautiful incorporated into the expanding in the belly tribe. The rest left forgotten and exposed in the verdant hills of Zululand. Their bodies scavenged and bloated. Their people's homes and hopes and dreams expunged in one sad doomsday. Everything they owned was either stolen or burned, including their children. And how many more little massacres will I tell you about before I die? Right now, I'm looking at rows and rows of stories like the destruction of Nyoka. I've got a stack of them kissing my elbow right now. I'll read the titles to you. Stasi by John Kohler. Soldiers of Destruction by Sidnor. Hell in the Pacific by Jim McHenry. Slavery in the Arab World by Gordon. Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and the Canaanite Genocide by Gundry et al. And I could go on and on. In my library are the deaths of untold millions, the liquidation of forgotten peoples, genocides heaped on genocides, inhumanity stacked up in teetering paper towers of pain. I see these stories, these witnesses, and I have to stop and say, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is so important. That's why many of our forefathers in our ancient religion counseled us to be peacemakers. I've said it once, and I'll say it again for anyone listening to this. You need to be wise as a serpent and peaceful as a dove. Inasmuch as it is up to you, you need to try and live in peace with all men. The more hate you put out, the more it will come back on you. And the more respect you put out, the more you will get in return. Anyway, after liquidating Nyoka, Mizlikazi crossed the Pongola River and entered a vast country inhabited by a number of independent clans who he promptly subdued using tactics developed by Shaka. In the present-day Transvaal, Mizlikazi struck camp for a while and augmented his fortune in grain, cattle, and serfs by successfully attacking neighboring Sudhu clans around Ekafumileni. Mizlikazi established military kraals or military villages where youths from his tribe along with teens from conquered clans were enlisted in Mizlikazi's army and trained before being sent on expeditions against neighboring clans in this way. Many more clans were conquered, their women captured and their able-bodied men commandeered into Mizlikazi's army. The Basutu clan, in trepidation, described their enemies as Matabili. Those who disappear, disappear behind their cowhide shields, connoting the Indibeli superior fighting tactics to the tribes around them. That's where the name for Mizlikazi's new nation came from, the Matabili or Indibeli, those who disappear behind their shields. And thus, the kingdom of Matabili land was born with its capital at Bulawayo in modern-day southwest Zimbabwe. Now, Mizlikeza went on to subdue the Mashon tribe to the north and east of Matabililand, and the Mashona people became his serfs, working helots, just like the ones for Sparta. They had no real rights and could be slain at Mizlikazi's will, their property and women taken on a whim, such as the concrete life of this noble savage that Rousseau dreamed up in his cafes in Paris as he ran away from his own five children, who, of course, he failed to support. Hobbes was right. Tribal life was often, but admittedly not always, brutal and short. There never was any paradise. Eventually, Mizlikazi died, and his son, Lobengula, took the throne in Matabililand. He ruled over both Matabililand and Mashonaland, which together comprised much of modern-day Zimbabwe. But only the Indabeli ethnic group were what we would call full members of the tribe. Everyone else were helots or serfs. That's when the Europeans arrived. And the arrival of Europeans was rather inconsequential. A few adventurers and missionaries had drifted into Mashonaland seeking mining rights or proselytizing rights. A few were even granted the right to preach or to dig a few holes. It was really no big deal. Until four hunters decided to pack a couple of cases of beer and go hunting where no European had ever been before. And so the four buddies trekked north into the king of Mashonaland's kingdom, made their way to the capital at Bulawayo, asked the king's permission to hunt up north for a while, which the overweight king gladly gave them. They had a few drinks with the king, and then off they went, deep into the interior of modern-day northern Zimbabwe. 
And as far as we know, the four men had no hostile intentions at all. They really were just out on a sort of hunting vacation until they ended up at an African village where, to their surprise, the people had gold absolutely everywhere. The four hunters pinched themselves. They couldn't believe it. And their leader, Joseph Wood, took the other three men aside and told them, all right, act like this is normal. Act like everybody where we're from has gold everywhere too. Don't act like you really want all the gold and don't hurt anybody. You hear me? Don't hurt anyone. We'll trade them for it. And so the hunters, who suddenly found themselves treasure finders, traded various European manufactured goods for a large, but not life-changing, amount of gold. In other words, they got enough gold to buy a nice house in the suburbs, but not enough to quit working. Still, it's one hell of a hunting trip. But these guys were no fools. They knew where there was that much gold in a little African backwater village, there had to be a ton more underground. So they tripped over themselves running back to the Indabeli king, Lobengula, and promptly cajoled the king of Mashonaland into signing a mining concession for them. These four guys, three Englishmen and one Boer. Their leader was a guy named Woods. And the concession wasn't that bad of a deal for the king himself. I've read the whole thing. They offered Lobengula about $17,000 a year to do nothing while they took all the risks. Now, $17,000 isn't going to get you a mansion, but this is one concession given to four guys who are trying to start a little bitty mine that might make nothing. They hadn't dug one penny from the ground yet, and they were willing to pay Lobengula $17,000 a year just for the right to try and get the gold. I mean, they're basically offering to buy Lobengula a decent house in Georgia if he lets them set up a small mining operation in the middle of nowhere. Now, keep in mind, because of inflation, this money is worth a lot more, well over $100,000 a year to do nothing. So they tell Lobengula, look, we're going to go up north. We're going to dig a couple holes. If we find anything, you'll get a handsome cut, and all you have to do is sit back here in your crawl at Bulawayo, Drink a few beers while we do all the work. We'll kick over a few rocks, find the gold, leave, and you'll be rich, and we'll be rich, and you won't have to see our white faces ever again. Win-win. Now, I'm asking you, listener, sounds like a good deal, right? Yeah, I agree. I saw you nod in my mind's eye. It does sound like a good deal to me, too. And it would have been a good deal if it weren't for Cecil Rhodes. The four hunters hadn't been back in the Cape for a month before one of them started shooting his mouth off about all the gold they discovered and had legal title to up in Matabili land, baby. They showed their signed concessions to anyone with a few dollars to invest and who was willing to listen. That's how news got back to Rhodes about the massive load of gold just waiting for the next rich English capitalist prime minister to come and take it. And Rhodes was going to be damned if he would sit back and let four hard-drinking adventurers take all that gold. No, Rhodes had other plans for their little asses. His machine-like network engaged swiftly and efficiently. First, Rhodes used his influence to block Woods and his friends from ever entering Matabili land again on the grounds that the four men would foment a war between Lobengula and rival tribes. Now, this was a total lie, just a small way governments often work for the interests of the rich and powerful while the regular guys thrown under the bus. Well, Woods was a real man. He wasn't going to take the denial of his rights lying down. He decided to enter Lobengula's kingdom anyway. Woods and his three fellow gold hunters were arrested at the border and compelled to sign a contract never to enter Lobengula's kingdom again. Wood and his friends were thus prevented from exercising the rights of their concession, and the field was left clear for Rhodes to leisurely organize a conspiracy to take over that concession. It started with Rhodes' fixer and business partner of many years, Charles Rudd, who promptly made his way to the crawl of Lobengula with two other well-paid professionals. And they had the express mission of getting the Indabeli king to sign a mining concession that would amount to a surrender of sovereignty to Rhodes. It was all well thought out and planned in advance. These things often are. Important rich men don't show up at your door with legal documents for you to sign without a lot of planning. About 30 other concession hunters were already at the king's crawl, pestering him for hours on end. He later told an interviewer, The European people at Bulawayu annoy me very much. They nearly talk me into madness. Rudd started negotiations by paying the king 100 gold sovereigns. A missionary interpreter kept a detailed record of the events. Rudd later described Lobengula this way, quote, 
The king is just what I expected, a very fine man, only very fat, but with beautiful skin and well-proportioned. He has a curious face. He's partly worried, partly good-natured, and partly cruel. He has a very pleasant smile, end quote. And the king was generous in return to the three dignitaries from Rhodes. He stuffed them full of fire-roasted meat and homemade matabili beer. One of Rhodes' men later recalled the negotiations, which would ultimately lead to the downfall of the Indibeli king and his people in this interview. Quote, Lobangula's place is a wagon that somebody gave him. There he used to sit on a block of wood in the middle of a great pole stockade surrounded by hundreds of sheep and goats. Every yard of ground is covered with dung, layer upon layer, and the whole place filthy dirty. When you approach the king, you have to squat on your haunches and remain in that position during the whole of the interview. Did the wealthy Mr. McGuire do that? I asked, as there dawned on me the incongruous picture of the dapper, rich gentleman, this member of parliament, the fellow of all souls squatting in Homeric dung. He had to, said Thompson dryly. He didn't like it, McGuire, not one bit. He used to complain a great deal about the maggots. In fact, at first he used to try to shirk a bit. He tried on one leg, keeping the most of his body off the ground. But they wouldn't have that, of course. Go ho, Dippelonzi! The young warriors would shout as they stood about twirling a soggy iron-tipped spears. Go ho ho! That man wants to be as big as the king! Down, man, down, says I, nudging McGuire with me elbows. I tell you, it's as much as your life is worth to shrink down. And down goes McGuire with a groan into the dung and maggots. It was a bit nasty. When the king was in a bad temper, he used to try to catch you out, make you contradict yourself. And he was as sharp as a needle at his own style of diplomacy, I can tell you. He remembered everything. And if you did contradict yourself, he was down on you at once. You have two words. You lie, he would rap out. Then the dogs... King Lobengula's European servants were always egging him on, prompting him to ask nasty questions and twisting around the answers so as to make him angry. These hanger-ons were Europeans who are runaways from civilization, who have thrown in their lot with the Indibeli and live among them on the king's bounty in the Indibeli style of life. There were a dozen or so of them at Bulawayo, it seems, always buzzing in the king's ears against the concession. You have two words, Thompson! Lobangula would growl out. No, king, says I. No, sir. My dear fellow, what does it matter? Whispers McGuire. You're a liar, Thompson, says the king. Yes, king. Yes, I am a liar. I would agree cheerfully, and then I would set to work patiently to reconcile the supposed contradiction, end quote. That's how the negotiations between extremely wealthy members of parliament and a king descended from royal Zulu blood played out, surrounded by filth and animals and pre-hippie Europeans. Back and forth the talk went for literally months until Rhodes' men finally got what they wanted. In the meantime, Rudd bribed many of the interpreters in Indibeli generals to support Rhodes' concession. They promised the king everything he could even desire, and for months the king had said nothing. Then finally, after bribing a key Indibeli general, they found out that Lobangula wanted guns more than money. This was the key that unlocked the state of Rhodesia. This was the key that unlocked forced population removals, free fire zones, twin browning machine guns hammering at scurrying gorillas from helicopters 200 feet in the air, prisons, torture, sabotage, assassination. It all started in a fetid wagon where Lobangula's lust for rifles made the king perk up and listen to the three men who swore to provide them to the king. In the end, Rhodes' men promised the king 1,000 Martini Henry rifles with ammunition and a gunboat on the Zambezi, in addition to a hundred sovereigns each month, and the king signed the airtight legal document drawn up by the best lawyers in Cape Town. It was an uncontestable concession of his sovereignty to Rhodes. Many of the guns were delivered to Lobangula. A little of the money came too. The gunboat never arrived. Such is the way nations are crushed, with lies and a little bit of money. Lobangula has signed away the mineral rights for the entire area of what is modern-day Zimbabwe. And Rudd was nobody's fool. Right after the king signed the document, he immediately excused himself, and before the ink was dry, he was riding south to Kimberley in South Africa to legally file the concession before Lobangula changed his mind. Rudd barely made it. He became lost and almost died from dehydration 
but was saved by the intercession of kindly Bushmen. In due course, the document was delivered. It was much more than a mere concession. It also forbade any other European nation or their representative from mining any mineral in Lobengula's kingdom. Moreover, it allowed for many European employees to enter Matabili land and work the mines, which would ultimately act as a cover for settler soldiers to enter the land. Finally, the king had signed a document with this ominous clause, quote, I, Lobengula, with the consent of my headmen and generals, do hereby grant Cecil Rhodes and his heirs complete and exclusive charge over all the metals and minerals situated and contained in my kingdom's principalities and dominions, together with full power to do all things that they may deem necessary to win and procure the same, and to hold, collect, and enjoy the profits and revenues, if any, derivable from the same metals and minerals." End quote. The king had given Cecil Rhodes full power to do all things he deemed necessary. Rhodes might decide he needed to build a giant road from Rhodes-controlled Kimberley in modern-day South Africa to modern-day Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. The road is called the A5 today. Rhodes might decide that he needed hundreds of heavily armed and well-equipped modern British soldiers to accompany his miners in order to safely procure his minerals. This was called the Pioneer Column. Finally, Rhodes might decide to take over the foreign policy of the entire region and set up a new administrative capital in order to hold and collect his minerals. He called the administrative capital Fort Salisbury. It's the modern-day location of the capital of Zimbabwe. Listener, I just told you about the fall of a nation. Without describing a single murder, we are Lobengula. We live in a web of power that is set up by well-educated men who write their human resources training and break down our industrial bases in order to serve specific purposes and specific interests. But don't take my word for it. Here's how the Wall Street Journal describes the process. Quote, Money from billionaire investor George Soros is helping transform once sleepy races for local prosecutors around the country with some candidates shedding the traditional tough-on-crime tone, and promising to make the justice system fairer. Mr. Soros, a major backer of liberal causes, has contributed at least $3.8 million to political action committees supporting candidates for district attorney in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Missouri, New Mexico, Texas, and Wisconsin, according to campaign filings. Quote. I'm not trying to single out George Soros. I'm not. There are hundreds of businesses NGOs, and wealthy men and women who do the exact same thing as Soros. For example, Bill Gates. All of their actions, not just the actions of George Soros, are seriously undermining the democratic order, according to John Rawls, who calls their actions a curse in his book, Political Liberalism. And Lobengula was cursed that day when he signed the little paper with a few paragraphs of turgid writing on it, the year was 1888. A few years later, Lobengula and his kingdom would cease to exist. After Rhodes gained the concession, he began to organize resources and investors to fund his invasion of King Lobengula's territory. There was some genuine opposition in Great Britain itself to his plans, and Rhodes was forced to delay his invasion while he dealt with his liberal opponents in London. But Cape Town is a long way from London in 1890, and a man like Rhodes could get away with a lot on a frontier in Africa, that he could never get away with in England. Finally, by 1890, to make a long story short, Rhodes was ready for his invasion. It would take place under Rhodes's private company, the British South Africa Company, and therefore would not require oversight by the British government. Now, because Cecil was technically going to enforce his legal trade rights, it made sense that his private company would be the organization that penetrated modern Zimbabwe. In point of fact, Rhodes wanted to avoid British oversight so he would have a free hand during his company's invasion. Lawrence James explains, quote, The British South African Company represented a revival of 17th century private enterprise colonization and trading. The government gained overlordship of the new territories on the cheap, since administration and policing were in the hands of the company's staff. The British South Africa Company's mandate was for farming and mining in Mashona land, where mineral and settlement rights had been granted by Lobengula. At the end of 1890, the first column of settlers, less than 400 in number, but heavily armed with machine guns, artillery, and even a steam-powered searchlight, entered Lobengula's kingdom, end quote. 
Many of the settlers were purposely recruited from prominent English and South African families. That way, if the pioneer column was attacked, the influential families back in England would demand aid for their children. Historian Richard Baker provides this description of the first pioneers. I should point out all the pioneers were male. Women were explicitly banned from the project. Quote, there are about 200 pioneers, and the men came from all corners of South Africa, including the Boer Republics and Natal. According to one eyewitness, the pioneer column included farmers, artisans, miners, doctors, lawyers, engineers, builders, bakers, soldiers, sailors, military cadets, three preachers, and one Jesuit. The great majority were drawn by the allure of gold and the chance to make a fortune. The 200 settlers were guarded by a further 500 mounted soldiers who would later form the nucleus of the British South African police, the official regular military force in Rhodesia for the next 60 years. In addition, 400 Africans from the Cape Colony accompanied the column in order to provide services such as road building and cooking, end quote. It took a great deal of time to organize the column, especially after the size of the military escort was doubled from 250 to 500 armed men. However, on May 6, 1899, the Pioneer Column set out from Kimberley on their long journey into the heart of modern-day Zimbabwe. Now, the march of the column went like this. First, a scouting party preceded the main body. The scouting party cut a rough road for the main body of pioneers in the rear who came up after. At night, the entire column formed up in a logger, which is a defensive square of wagons with machine guns and the steam engine-powered searchlight constantly probing the darkness for a surprise attack. Keep in mind, the pioneers are building their own road while they're trekking into the interior, and everyone constantly worked on the road, Europeans and Africans. The column made about 12 miles a day. But Lobengula hadn't been drinking beer and playing hopscotch this whole time. Reports were flooding into the king that a huge body of armed men were marching into his kingdom and building a road as they went. This was not what the king had bargained for, and many of his young generals were raging at him to do something about it. They all could see that the sovereignty of the Indabeli nation was at stake, but Lobengula was no fool. He did not want to gamble everything away on one throw of the dice in a war against the settlers, and he knew... He would probably lose, and even if he did win, how many more Europeans would flood into his country after he had killed a thousand of them? No, he constrained his hot-headed generals and let the column continue. However, he did protest both to European representatives of Rhodes and to the column itself. He sent numerous notes and messengers to the column asking the captains what they were doing. Here is one that he sent, and I think you can get a sense of something of the king's intelligence in the way he dealt with the column this way quote who are you and where are you going what do you want and by whose orders are you here where are you leading your young men that looks like so many sheep and do you think they will get back to their homes again go back at once or i will not be answerable for the consequences do you not think that european blood can flow as well as african end quote to the leaders of the column, Lobengula swore that if they were captured alive, they would have their skin flayed off in the king's presence. One of the military commanders of the column, Colonel Pennyfather, replied to the Indabeli king, I am an officer of the Queen of England. My orders are to go to Mashonaland, and there I am going. We do not want to fight. We only want to dig for gold, and we are taking this road to avoid your young men. But if they attack... We know how to defend ourselves, end quote. Still, regardless of the protest of the king, the column continued on. They built a few forts to cover their rear as they pressed into the interior. Slowly, ever slowly, the advanced scouts pushed forward. Finally, they came to the region surrounding modern-day Harare with a climate that was a godsend after the blistering weeks of grinding under the bitter African sun. Even today, the area is hot during the day, but a breeze frequently blows through the region, and at night, it gets quite chilly like a brisk fall day in Ohio. In short, it was good weather for Europeans, and morale improved across the column. On September 12, 1890, the column formed up into its last logger on a flat-topped hill. The military men called the place Fort Salisbury. At 10 a.m. on September 13th, the column saluted the raising of the Union Jack in the middle of Mashonaland. There was a new boss in town, and everybody, the Indabelli, the Shona, and the settlers all knew it. There were prayers, and there was a salute, 
by the cannon. The bugles played, and the men saluted the queen three times. After that, the officers and the chaplains toasted one another on a job well done. They had single-handedly added 150,000 square miles of Africa to the British Empire. The settlers fanned out across the country in search of good land for farms and easy gold for their pockets. They would never find any gold, but the land was good, and in a few years, it was yielding both food and cash crops. But that was a few years away. In the meantime, hardship and misery accompanied the settler wherever he went. His hardship was shared by the Africans who surrounded him. The first year of the colony was a disaster. Robert Rotberg describes it like this, quote, Many believe that Rhodes and the company had abandoned them. Cut off from the south during much of the first half of 1891 by heavy rains and prevented from opening up the shorter route to Beira because of Portuguese antagonism and natural obstacles, they had endured shortages of food, supplies, and equipment. Cornmeal, their staple food, rotted before it could be conveyed to them. Coffee, sugar, flour, pepper, and even peas became impossibly scarce. Quinine, essential to ward off malaria, soared in price from several shillings to five pounds an ounce, which is about $650 in today's money. Jam was around $200 a pot, and whiskey reached about $120 a bottle. They also learned to their displeasure that Rhodes and De Beers controlled the subsoil rights, that all mining successes would have to be shared with the company. End quote. In short, the settlers were miserable and lonely. There were few stable shelters in the whole colony. There were literally only two European women in the whole country, and those two were there illegally and totally claimed by powerful men. Small consolations like decent food, sweets, and liquor that can make the unbearable bearable and end, as Herbert Marcuse constantly wrote, turn hell into an annoying inconvenience, were basically non-existent. The plague caused by insects was beyond Homer's power of description. Termites devoured everything in record time. There were so many of them, and they ate so much wood that buildings actually collapsed due to the omnipresent termite invasion. Mosquitoes clouded the air around the men's faces, gnawing on them, leaving welts, driving men insane with their incessant sound. And during the wet months, malaria ran through the ranks of the settlers like the angel of death through the streets of Egypt. Still, for the next few years, things improved. In May 1891, the British government claimed Rhodesia as a protectorate, complete with the right to legislate for all the inhabitants of the area. The soil was good, and the settler farmers found their crops grew well in the Zimbabwean sun. Families rejoined their fathers, the laughter of children and the grace of women, who were still a small minority among settlers, made life more bearable. Telegraph lines were put up but they were often cut down by local Africans who could use the wire. In short, the colony rumbled and stumbled towards a viable existence. Now keep in mind, Rhodesia wasn't a clear-cut and organized place the way it is on a map today. In reality, Lobengula, the Indabeli chieftain, ruled over the Shona in Mashona land, and he considered the Shona to be his vassals, not the British government's vassals. In other words, Lobengula viewed his rule as complete over the Shona, and he believed the British had no right to interfere in the way he dealt with his subject tribes. Robert Blake takes up the story, quote, in 1891, the British claimed sovereignty over all the persons living in modern-day Zimbabwe. This obviously included the Shona, but the Shona themselves recognized no such jurisdiction, nor did Lobengula, who still claimed authority over all Mashona land. In 1891, he showed the reality of his claim by sending a group of raiders to punish a prominent Shona chief for failing to pay tribute. The chief was killed, his village left in ashes, and his women and children taken off into bitter, grinding slavery. In other words, the situation was far from clear, and it was particularly disagreeable for the Shona, who were looked on as a subject people by both the Indabeli and the settlers. The rival claims of the Indabeli and the settlers on the Shona were irreconcilable. War was increasingly viewed as inevitable, end quote. But King Lobengula, the man who could have unleashed a wave of massacres across Rhodesia, behaved like a true king. He knew what could happen if he made open warfare on the colonists, and so he did all he could to avoid war. A modern historian provides the details, quote, Lobengula, 
Outsmarted by Rhodes, in many ways humiliated by the establishment of Rhodesia in the country of the Shona, nevertheless behaved impeccably. He had restrained the hotheads among his generals who had wished to teach the Europeans a lesson. Over and over again, he had avoided conflict and curbed his war parties. He had refrained from maintaining a tight hold over the Shona, whom he still regarded as his subjects and serfs. He had turned the other cheek away from European provocation, knowing that sooner or later Europeans would try to take his country. He always sought to avoid any conflicts. He had readily agreed to an informal border between European and Indabelli spheres and apologized on those occasions when his men mistakenly crossed the line to chase or levy tribute on the Shona. But Lobengula was under steady pressure from within. Many of his generals believed him too passive and insufficiently challenging to the Europeans. He was accused of allowing the Shona to shelter under the Europeans' tent, of not pursuing the true interests of the Indabelli people. Given these tactical disagreements, given the growing boldness of the settlers and the impatience of the Indabelli, and given what appeared to be a stagnancy, a lack of urgent development in Rhodesia, it's neither surprising that the local Europeans began to spoil for a fight, nor that the Africans unwittingly soon provided opportunities for an escalation of hostilities, end quote. The conflict would finally boil over in May 1893. At the time, there were about 1,100 settlers in the entire colony, compared with about 18,000 in Dibeli. The cause of the conflict was inter-African tribal war. A small group of Shona tribesmen stole some of Lobengula's cattle and took them back to an area controlled by British settlers. The Shona were clearly using the newfound colony's sovereignty to free themselves from Indibeli overlordship. This was a huge slap to Lobengula. In Zulu and Indibeli culture, cattle were everything. They were the most important property a man owned. It was more than just theft. It was also a socio-cultural violation of Indibeli overlordship. The theft was made worse because it was committed by Shona, who the Indibeli considered dogs and serfs. Lobengula had to teach them a lesson or he would ipso facto lose face in front of his young, war-hungry generals. And so, Lobengula sent out his steel-faced warriors and they had no compunction about reasserting Indibeli authority over the Shona right in front of the very eyes of the Europeans. They would have chased the Shona dogs all the way to Antarctica if need be. The Indibeli were the sons of thunder and they knew no fear. Now, it happened near a settlement called Fort Victoria. The settlers saw everything. Lobengula gave strict orders that Europeans were not to be harmed in any way. However, European property, not to mention feelings of security, were totally violated. Wherever you are, imagine looking out the window and seeing hundreds of lithe, muscle-chiseled indibelli screaming and running through your streets, their faces contorted in warlike hatred, their language alien and frightening. They sing songs, songs you don't understand but are clearly threatening. Then the indibelli tribe men fall on their enemies, massacring whole villages, the stench of dead humanity and burning homes wafts through your streets, and the sky glows orange at night from the fires. You hear the Shona women pleading for mercy, but all they find is brutal slavery. The children cry pitiful tears. Everywhere you look is destruction, burning homes, wide-eyed carcasses of cattle, fear imprinted in their dying faces like a master artist, a second Michelangelo, carved the fear into the cow's very flesh, slashed Hacked, decaying humanity is everywhere. Shona's bodies were mutilated in ways I can't even describe on this podcast. And you've heard me describe insane things in times past. Women were disemboweled, their wet entrails spooling out behind them like perverse Christmas decorations. Children were roasted alive. It was literally too much carnage to even describe. And the Indibelli were proud of their handiwork. They relished in it, laughed about it. Then the same Indibelli warriors who did all these things came to your house and start destroying your furniture, kill your best workers, and steal your most valuable possessions, all while the sickly sweet smell of death fogs through the air and the smell of grilled meat whispers in your nostrils. Meat you've never smelled before because it's the smell of Shona children burning in the fires. Imagine Shona begging you personally 
for your protection, and you try and save some, imagine the fear caked into the voices of the Shona, and you realize if you are a European surveying the scene, how easily it could have been your ramshackle home transformed into a glowing lava lamp and your head mutilated and placed on a pike. It was the first major raid that a large number of Europeans had ever witnessed in Rhodesia. There would never be another one. The settlers immediately set about organizing a way to crush the Indibeli so that such a massacre could never be possible again. For days, one of the key men in charge of the colony at this time, Leander Jameson, received reports of a nightmare taking place at Fort Victoria. Jameson discounted the rumors at first until July 17, 1893, when he saw the full horror of the scene with his own eyes. Immediately after that, Jameson issued orders for all Indebelli males in the region to be hounded out of the area. His telegram read, quote, I intend to treat them like dogs and drive all of them out of the country. If they do not go, send Captain Lindy out with 50 mounted men to fire into them, end quote. The Indibeli refused to leave, and Lindy followed his orders, and so the First Matabili War broke out, the first major war in modern Rhodesia, Zimbabwean history. The war started when the commander of the 50 mounted men, Lindy, followed the trail of quivering, dying humanity to the location of the Indibeli warriors. Lindy and his men passed through two utterly devastated crawls, or native villages, that were scenes of absolute horror. The descriptions make George Romero films seem like an episode of Paw Patrol. When he finally found the warriors, Lindy didn't even bother to talk to them. He simply fired into them, killing one general and nine other warriors. The rest, who Loban Gula specifically warned not to attack Europeans, fell back across the border into their own territory. After this incident, Jameson decided war was inevitable, and from that moment on, a web of forces massed on Lobengula's borders. His fate was already sealed. Lobengula's patience was at an end. He boldly reasserted his authority over the entire region, even where Europeans had settled, and he forthrightly declared to European ambassadors that if he knew then what he knew now, he would have destroyed even more European property. On October 5th, reports started coming in to colonial authorities that local police patrols were being attacked. That's when Jameson pressed the button and unleashed about 450 soldiers on the Indibeli. The campaign was a walkover. It's actually lackluster material for this presentation. I'll let Richard Blake describe it. Quote, Indibeli generalship was incompetent and resistance collapsed rapidly. It's true that with the machine gun, the Europeans possessed a new weapon of formidable power. The campaign was one of the first occasions for the machine gun's extensive and effective use and inspired one poet to write this, Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim machine gun and they have not. Nevertheless, better in the belly tactics may have delayed the campaign for months and seriously devastated the colony's finances. Instead, the Indibeli battle groups, called impies, did the one thing that was sure to be fatal, engage in offensive set-piece battles over open ground. Their courage was immense, but so were their losses. Although they had excellent rifles, their shooting was wildly erratic, and they never came close enough to use their traditional spears. After one major engagement, the settlers marched steadily towards the Indibeli capital of Bulawayo, destroying two major impies in two different battles, end quote. After that, it was just a matter of time. Lobengula knew the writing was on the wall, and he took it like a man. He burned down his own capital, sparing any Europeans in the immediate area to prove he did not want to kill Europeans, but only wanted to establish his own authority. Next, he destroyed all the ammunition his men could not carry. The explosions could be heard for miles, fireworks for the death of the Indibeli nation. And he led the remnants of his tribe into the northern regions of the African hinterland. He was defeated. But as long as a seed of his tribe remained, there was a hope the Indibeli nation would rise again. On November 4th, the British soldiers and volunteers marched into the smoking ruins that had once been Bulawayo. The bagpipes played and they ran up the Union Jack. For all intents and purposes, the war was now over. On December 3rd, Lobengula sent 1,000 gold sovereigns to Jameson. British men, he wrote in the note that accompanied the gold, I am defeated. Take this and leave. Lobengula's messengers gave the gold 
To two British scouts who were out on patrol, they told no one they ever received it, and they split the gold between themselves. Consequently, Lobengula's peace offering was ignored, and this greed for gold on the part of the two troopers led to the last tragedy of the war, the Shangani Patrol Incident, which took place on December 4th. But the Shangani Patrol began actually on November 14th, when Jameson sent a mounted force under command of a man named Major Patrick Forbes to capture King Lobengula. He was explicitly ordered to capture the king fast before the rainy season set in, and his capture would become almost impossible. A modern historian picks up the story. By December 3rd, Forbes, with 160 men, was on the bank of the Shangani River within a day's march of Lobengula. The weather was very wet. His men were exhausted, his horses frothing at the mouth from exhaustion. Had the message in the bag of gold been delivered, he would probably have treated with the king, and the subsequent disaster might have been averted. In the event, Major Forbes sent a mounted patrol of 19 men under Major Allen Wilson to scout the area and bring back news of Lobengula's location before dusk. Forbes could see King Lobengula's royal wagon, so the king must be nearby, but this was all a ruse. Lobengula's able general, Mian, deliberately let the Europeans see the king's baggage train. It was all a trap. He was trying to lure the entire European main body across the water where they could be surrounded and destroyed by the superior numbers of Indebelli warriors, end quote. Wilson duly crossed the river, but, thinking that he might suddenly seize the king, disobeyed orders and stayed across the river at night instead of returning to the main body of troops, back across the river like he was supposed to do. Wilson didn't know he was surrounded by thousands of battle-hardened Indebelli warriors, but he could hear them and even feel them, sense them, working all around his exposed force, the way children are frightened by the unknown darkness of a forest in the night through a cold glass window. He asked for reinforcements from their main body. Forbes had intelligence that the main impi had circled back to attack him, and then he decided he could not break his camp at night, but instead of recalling Wilson, he would send a second detachment of 21 men under Captain Barrow to reinforce the patrol. The river rose during the night, however, and now the patrol was truly cut off. At dawn on December 4th, heavy firing was heard, but it was impossible to cross the Shingani River to help the doomed patrol. Forbes, short of food and supplies, and himself constantly under attack from the roused Ndebele, had to retreat. For many weeks, men hoped against hope for survivors. It was not until two months later that the scene of Wilson's last stand was examined, and with the aid of captive Indebelli eyewitnesses, the disaster was reconstructed. Peter Baxter recounts what happened, quote, The first Indebelli attack began with a volley of fire from the direction of King Lobengula's wagons. One horse was killed and a trooper wounded as the patrol fought a brief rearguard action before falling back and forming a defensive circle around a termite mound. The first rushed attack was beaten back, after which the Indebelli retreated to a safe distance and observed the men. It was at this stage that Wilson finally understood the immense danger he was in. Forming a square, the patrol managed to cover a short distance before it became apparent that they would not escape unless they mounted an aggressive charge. This would mean leaving those on foot and the wounded to the mercy of the Indebelli, swarming through the hills everywhere around them. It was decided that they would form another defensive circle, dig in, and then send out two mounted men across the river to Forbes and the column in order to get help. The scouts got through, but beyond, the Indebelli general began to concentrate his attack on the diminutive Shangani patrol. The 34 Afrikaner, British, Australian, and Americans surrounded by their enemies fought to the last cartridge, and then, when their ammunition had run out, and their enemies' bodies piled in disfigured pyramids around them, when almost all of them were wounded and hope had fled from them like a fickle, beautiful woman, they looked death square in the face and sang the national anthem as they waited to be shot, clubbed, or speared to death.
In just a matter of seconds, the voices died out, and still one lone man kept singing. He was hiding, buried under the dead bodies of his comrades, until soon, too, his song was blotted out forever by the edge of a short spear, and darkness clouded the British trooper's eyes. And so the first Matabili War ended with song and blood, massacre, and opera. Lobengula perished soon after the Shangani patrol. No one knows exactly how the old king died. He was a wise man. He kept his warriors in check. But he was in an impossible situation. Slowly, the remaining Indabelli generals surrendered to the English one by one. The war was now truly over. But soon, another, much worse, more bloody war would begin. It was the first Chimaringa. But that's next month's podcast. And that's another one in the books for me. Once again, I want to thank everyone who writes in and who leaves a five-star review wherever you're listening. I'm very thankful for all of you. But until next time, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. I hope you'll be with me next month as we recount the first Chimaringa. The blood's going to be flowing through your speakers next month. I guarantee it. Until then, bye.